It's time to think about the Bible like you never have before. This is Christian Questions. After the podcast, check out everything ChristianQuestions.com has to offer. Also see our weekly video series releases at ChristianQuestions.com slash YouTube. Here's your hosts, Rick and Jonathan. Dietrich Bonhoeffer once said, Action springs not from thought, but from a readiness for responsibility. I'm Rick, and this is not your typical Christian commentary as we look at Bible-related topics from a different perspective. Joining me as always is Jonathan, my co-host, for more than two decades. This podcast centers on godly principles, family values, and honest dialogue in a politically free zone. Jonathan, what is our topic for today's episode? Are Christians supposed to convert the world? Our theme text, Matthew 28, 19. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. And Julie is also with us today. Hi, Rick and Jonathan. So, are Christians supposed to convert the world? To live, oh, oh, I'm sorry, before that, coming up in today's podcast. Is it really fair that our present evil day is the only time anyone in the world can come to Christ or suffer consequences. Many believe it is. Find out our position on this in about 15 minutes. If we were to suggest that everyone does not have to come to Christ now or be punished, how would that affect the whole concept of hell? Well, you might be surprised. We're going to look at this in about 30 minutes. And finally, if we as Christians are not supposed to be trying to save every soul on earth now, then how does the gospel message even work? We have answers in about 45 minutes, but first, let's focus on what Jesus told us to do. To live a life as a disciple of Christ is to live a life of discipline and focus. We are walking in Jesus' footsteps, and that means there are many things we need to do. After all, Jesus, by teaching example, wrote the book of our faith. So, what did Jesus expect from his followers regarding his gospel and a world full of unbelievers? When he ascended to heaven and gave us what is known as the Great Commission, what was he instructing? Are we responsible to get the good word of the gospel out, or are we responsible to get all the unbelievers in? If we're not sure of what he was instructing, how can we know if we're doing a good job? So there's a lot that we need to cover here with this one specific question. Okay, Rick, uh, let's start. Just before ascending to heaven, Did Jesus commission his apostles and us to convert the world? Okay, so just no warm-up, just start, okay? Let's do this. Let's do this thing. (laughs) And and let's look at this this very, very dramatic event. The account in which Jesus spoke his last words to his disciples before he ascended up to heaven is actually recorded in three different places. It's recorded in Matthew 28, 16 to 20, Luke 24, 44 to 49, and Acts chapter 1, verses 6 through 11. So we're going to look at this account using all three sources as we see them fitting together into one narrative. So we're going to combine the three sources into one narrative in the best way that we can. But before we get to this particular ascension narrative, a few verses from Jesus teaching earlier that day are going to help establish the message, because Jesus was on task long before he was ready to ascend. So, Jonathan, let's start with Luke 24, verses 46 to 48. And he said to them, Thus it is written, that the Christ would suffer and rise again from the dead the third day, and that repentance for forgiveness of sins would be proclaimed in his name to all the nations, beginning from Jerusalem. 
You are witnesses of these things. So the key Christian instruction there is proclaim the gospel of repentance and the pardon of sins through Jesus. That's pretty plain. I think Christians would all agree on this point. Yeah, it's very straightforward. Proclaim the gospel and, and, and that pardon of sin through Jesus. So, so, Jonathan, we've got two words here that we want to be really sure of, the word for forgiveness and the word for proclaimed. Well, forgiveness means freedom, figuratively pardon, and proclaimed means to herald. All right, now that word for uh, pardon, that's very similar to what we were talking about in our forgiveness podcast last week. So we get this sense that that's the forgiveness that Jesus brings us. And to proclaim is to shout it out, to let people know. Whoever is listening, whoever's around, you just want to let them know. That's what we're, we're seeing in this pre-ascension instruction from Jesus. So now Jesus continued in this exact context uh, with the next verse, Luke 24, verse 49. And behold, I am sending you forth the promise of my Father upon you, but you are to stay in the city until you are clothed with power from on high. So our key Christian instruction is that all is going to be done in Jesus' name, and that should be by the power of God's Spirit. And for us, this means we sometimes need to watch and wait for God's providence before acting. See, there, there's a lot here, because he's, he's telling his disciples, stay in Jerusalem until God's Spirit comes to you. So for them, they knew they weren't supposed to do a blessed thing in his name until that happened. For us, that happened 2,000 years ago, but we still need to watch and wait to make sure that it's God's Spirit driving us, not our emotions driving us. That was before the, the, the time where he ascends. Now let's fast forward to the combined accounts of his ascension. And again, they're from Matthew, from Luke, and from Acts. So we're going to start with that combined account. We'll start with Luke chapter 24, verse 50, and add some Matthew and Acts in as we go. And he led them out as far as Bethany. The eleven disciples proceeded to Galilee to the mountain which Jesus had designated. So when they had come together, they were asking him, saying, Lord, is it at this time you're restoring the kingdom to Israel? He said to them, It is not for you to know times or seasons which the Father has fixed by his own authority. So our key Christian instruction is the restoration of Israel would happen, but at a time beyond their knowledge. And this restoration would therefore become really a faith-based expectation. It's really interesting that they were all about is this the time where Israel's going to have the kingdom restored? They had this real strong sense, and they're asking for the restoration of the kingdom for two reasons. First of all, they're under Roman rule. They cannot govern themselves. And secondly, Jesus had cast Israel off. Remember in, in Matthew 23, when he's talking to the Pharisees, he says, Behold, your house is left to you desolate. How often would I have gathered you together as a hen gathers your chicks, but you just wouldn't. I mean, he withered a fig tree. He told parables about it. He just—it was obvious that Israel had lost favor here. So now when we look at this, and they're, they're looking forward to, okay, this, this restoration of Israel, Jonathan, how do we see it 2,000 years later? Well, for us, this faith-based expectation is prophetically fulfilled fact. It is, but it's still in process. It's still in progress. It's a work under construction. We've seen Israel very miraculously brought back to their homeland— we will see God's favor more and more and more going to Israel in that homeland. So we live in the time when they were asking at his ascension when, and we're seeing the beginnings of it now. That's pretty powerful stuff. 
So, Jonathan, let's continue with the combined accounts of the Ascension. We're going to pick up in Acts chapter 1, verse 8. But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you shall be my witnesses both in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria, and even to the remotest part of the earth. So our key Christian instruction is receiving God's Spirit enables disciples to be approved and God's strengthened witnesses to Jesus. This witness would begin locally and would expand throughout the world, even to the remotest part of earth. And for us, this means we are in the latter stages of this commission as the gospel is worldwide. So now in this great commission, and again, it's interesting, in, we, we started off where he is, be, before he's at the point of ascension, he reminds them the Holy Spirit's coming. And what does he say? Here again, he reminds them again. He's telling them, this is such an important piece. You'll receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. And then, and then you get to go do all of this work. And this work is going to start in Jerusalem, because that's where they were, that's where the Spirit came to them, and it will spread throughout the remote parts of the earth. This is a dramatic, dramatic experience that he's putting upon them, and he is just about to leave them um, with his ascension, very, very soon after. Let's continue this combined account, and we're going to pick up with Matthew twenty-eight, eighteen. And Jesus spoke to him, saying, All authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I commanded you. So right there, it says we are to make disciples of all nations, that sounds like we're being charged with a massive earthwide conversion, right? Well, it says make disciples of all nations. It doesn't say make all nations disciples. We have to be careful as to how we read what's written and not read into what's written. And the idea is to go out and preach and expand the borders of the preaching further and further and further. It's about the preaching, witnessing to the world preaching to the world, proclaiming to the world, does not imply conversion of the world. It simply says that's what you are being called upon to do. So this is a, this is a very important aspect, and we need to be focused on what it's really saying. Okay, so back in 1861, Bible societies declared, interesting fact, that the gospel had been published in every known language, thereby fulfilling this text. But today there's something like 1800 languages for which a translation is still in progress and some estimates say 165 million people don't even have a single verse of scripture translated into their language so would you say that matthew 28 19 make disciples of all nations has been fulfilled i would say it has been fulfilled and it continues to be fulfilled even as we speak being out into the world into the remote parts of the world has happened already but just because it happens doesn't mean you sit back and say, oh, it's done. No, no, no. Oh, it started. What part do I play? That's really what we have to look at. So this is something that, yeah, the, the gospel has been all over the world, but we must be responsible to do whatever we can in whatever part of the world we have and whatever God's providence opens up to us to continue that work because we are still part of this great commission. Okay. Well, I've got one more scripture. Um, you know, after Jesus rose from the dead, he said in Mark 16, 15, go into all the world and preach the gospel to all creation. So here's another preach, 
not right. convert right. to all nation. But I can understand why people take this on as their life's work. You know, missionaries are very serious. It's much like we have here with Christian questions. You know, we're definitely trying to go into all the world and preach the gospel to all creation. Right, right. But it, it that's the responsibility. The the conversion part remains on, on God's shoulders. That's okay. that's not our responsibility. So so Julie, when we look at that Matthew twenty eight verse about preaching, making disciples of all nations, baptizing and so forth, what's our key Christian instruction there? Well Jesus told us in your witness efforts, find those who would also follow and bring them into the fold. Teach them everything that I've taught you. And for us, the meaning is the same, but expanded. We must focus on bringing the truth that Jesus and his true disciples taught to those we nurture as disciples. So we are no less responsible. I guess that's one of the big points we have to make here, is we are no less responsible than those original disciples because we're given the same responsibilities to get the word out, to preach, and to, and to teach what Jesus and his followers taught. Let's continue our combined reading with Acts chapter 1, verse 9. And after he had said these things, he lifted up his hands and blessed them. Lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. While he was blessing them, he parted from them and was carried up into heaven. Wow. Well, can you imagine that scene? Yeah. So our key Christian instruction is that the earthly work of Jesus was completed. He departed to his father with a blessing, and this began his heavenly work. And for us, this is enormous. Jesus, when he finished his work uh, on earth, he blessed those with him as well. And that made me think of John chapter 17, verses 19 and 20. Jesus prays that his followers would be set apart for a holy purpose. And verse 20 reads, I do not ask on behalf of these alone, but for those also who believe in me through their word. You know, that's us. This is very comforting. He's with us to the end of the age. And he mentioned us at the end of the age when he ascends to heaven at the very, very, very introduction of the gospel. So it is comforting because he sees the whole picture here. So through applying scriptural principles combined with social activism and political influence, is the Christian supposed to create a kind of heaven on earth, like a Christian kingdom, which will in turn convert everyone to Christianity? I'm hearing these buzzwords out there like Christian reconstructionism and kingdom dominion. And the gist of their point is that Christians are supposed to transform the earth from an environmental, a political, a sociological standpoint before Jesus can return and take control. Is that what the Bible teaches? No. <laughs> Simple no. And, Do you want to think about it? <laughs> no, I don't want to think about it. I don't need to hesitate on this. This is no. Okay. Think, think about it from this perspective. When we go to the prophecy in Daniel, Daniel 2, verses, I think, 44 and 45, he's interpreting the dream of Nebuchadnezzar, and he talks about it, and he says, with the dream, with the, with the image being crushed by the stone, he says, God will set up a kingdom which will never be destroyed. And then he says, in this prophecy, it will crush these other kingdoms, but it, this new kingdom will endure forever. The kingdom of God is not built on the, 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 uh, the, the previous kingdoms. It destroys them, and it's an entirely new superstructure. So the idea of reconstructing what's here is you don't fix what's broken because it's not fixable. God's kingdom is different. So no, it does not apply in that way according to Scripture. 
we're not renovating this earth. No, no, it's absolutely gonna be gone. Not. Absolutely okay. not. Okay, so so Jonathan, let's wrap this up. Converging on our conversion responsibility. How do we now focus in on what our specific responsibility is regarding conversion and witnessing? Jesus provided all of this key Christian instruction, and yet something is missing. There is not one word about converting the world. We are to use God's Spirit to witness, expand the witness, and develop disciples from any nation. Jesus does not give us the responsibility to convert the world. He didn't tell us you had to convert everybody. He did tell us it is our responsibility to preach. So at first glance, this Great Commission seems to be focused on preaching activity and not conversion results. If we say we are only focused on preaching and not converting, doesn't that leave multitudes unsaved? Obviously, we need to dig deeper here as we have only examined one specific, albeit very important, portion of the Gospel account. Examining Jesus' other teachings on the matter coupled with other New Testament writings. Put it all together. This will give us a far more comprehensive understanding of truth regarding what are we supposed to be doing? What is this Great Commission really all about? According to the Pew Research Center, as of 2015, the world is about 31% Christian. So that means over two-thirds of the world's population is not Christian. So billions of people are either another religion or no religion at all. And trivia, the fastest growing major religious group is Muslim. Um, Combine this with all the people who died prior to Jesus on the earth and those who died as something other than Christian, it appears to me that if the goal was to convert the world, then Christianity has been a miserable failure in all timelines. Not only that, let me make it even a worse failure for you, because you say 31% of the world is Christian. Have you ever met somebody who says they're a Christian, but they're really not? Sort oh, of. Yeah, kind of, a lot of people. <laughs> yeah. So when you take that 31%, do you cut it in half, or do you cut it by two-thirds? So really, you have very, very few who have truly, truly followed Jesus. So what, what does this all mean? How do we put all this in perspective? This is what we want to outline as we go through this really important question. Are Christians supposed to convert the world? Well, in the parable of the sower, you know, we went over this in detail in episode 664. Jesus reveals a profoundly important truth regarding the gospel and those who are exposed to it. Normally, a parable is left for the listener to interpret, but in this case, Jesus himself does the interpreting. So it makes it a lot easier to look at this particular parable. Let's just give you a very quick overview of of the the, the skeleton of the parable. A farmer sows seeds. Some of those seeds fall along the path. Some of those seeds fall onto stony places. Some of those seeds fall into thorny places. And some of those seeds fall into good ground. So those are the, 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 the important pieces. The seeds either grow or they don't grow. We see Jesus and his followers as the sower. Anyone sowing the, the seed? And so the question is, well, what's the seed? Jesus gives us the answer in Luke 8.11. Now the parable is this. The seed is the word of God. Very simple, very straightforward. Thank you, Jonathan. You made it easy. The word of God. <laughs> the word of God is sown in all kinds of different places. Now we're not going to go through the entire parable. We're going to look at one specific aspect of this parable, and it's going to help us realize the depth of what this particular story is teaching. Jesus explains the meaning of the seed falling on or beside the path, and we're going to focus on that piece because there's a big understanding for our relationship to converting versus preaching here. 
So, Jonathan, let's jump to Matthew 13, verse 19. When anyone hears the word of the kingdom and does not understand it, the evil one comes and snatches away what has been sown in his heart. This is the one on whom the seed was sown beside the road. Okay, so the seed sown beside the road, it gets snatched away because he doesn't understand. So the question is, if we are bound to the responsibility of converting the world now, why does a simple lack of understanding of the word give Satan the ability to take it away? Jonathan, what does it mean? It says he doesn't understand it. What does understand mean? It means to put together, to comprehend. So it's a very straightforward statement that Jesus is making. If he doesn't understand, if he doesn't comprehend it, it can be taken from him. Yeah, but first of all, people have free will. So if someone walks away because they don't understand the message, why is Satan blamed for that? And on the other hand, how can someone be judged eternally if Satan snatched their opportunity away? That's not fair. Ah, well, and you have a point there. And the answer in all of this lies in what Jesus explained after he spoke the parable to the people, yet before he explained in detail the parable to his disciples. There's this little transition in between. Listen to what Jesus says here. Matthew 13, we're going to look at verses 10 through 17, but let's start with 10 through 12. And the disciples came and said to him, Why do you speak to them in parables? Jesus answered them, To you it has been granted to know the mysteries of the kingdom of heaven, but to them it has not been granted. For whoever has, to him more shall be given, and he will have an abundance. But whoever does not have, even what he has shall be taken away from him. So this starts out, to you it's been granted to know mysteries, but to them, not so much. No, they're, 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 they're put outside. See, there's an obvious separation of privilege here between the disciples, who are saying, why do you talk to them in parables, and the everybody else, those who are just hearing the parables. It goes further, though. Jesus continues, and let's do Jonathan verses 13 to 15. Therefore I speak to them in parables, because while seeing, they do not see, and while hearing, they do not hear, nor do they understand. In their case, the prophecy of Isaiah is being fulfilled, which says, you will keep on hearing, but will not understand. You will keep on seeing, but will not perceive. For the heart of this people has become dull. With their eyes, they are scarcely here, and with they are closed of their eyes, otherwise they would see with their eyes, hear with their ears, and understand with their heart, and return, and I would heal them. And, and, and Rick, this, this quote does come from Isaiah 6, verses 9 and 10. Okay, so Jesus is quoting Isaiah 6, 9 and 10. He is clearly saying, very, very plainly saying, this Isaiah prophecy of not hearing, not seeing, lest they be converted, is coming true. He, Jesus, is here clearly saying the gospel is not meant for everyone, not even for God's own chosen people. Now, the plot thickens. Let's go to verse, uh, verses 16 and 17 of Matthew 13. But blessed are your eyes because they see, and your ears because they hear. For truly I say to you that many prophets and righteous men desire to see what you see and did not see it, and to hear what you hear and did not hear it. So wait a minute. So first <laughs> Satan keeps people in the dark, and now it's Jesus? Like, how unfair is this? Most of Earth's billions never stood a chance. And you're right. You look at this, and if you look at this in the context 
of with with those eyes, with that viewpoint like that, either it's now or never, this doesn't look fair at all. And Jesus himself is saying, nope, I'm making it so they don't understand. Why would he do that? Why would it be so unfair? Let's unfold this a little further, okay? Because there's much, much more to it. And the bottom line, just got to say it because it bothers me not to say it, is it's not unfair. It is the most fair and just thing you will ever see, but you've got to see how this unfolds. The prophet Ezekiel actually gives us further proof of this worldly condition in Israel where they were just off the beaten path. They were not following after God's will. And, and, And this is what it says in Ezekiel 12, verses 1 to 2. Then the word of the Lord came to me, saying, Son of man, you live in the midst of the rebellious house, who have eyes to see but do not see, ears to hear but do not hear, for they are a rebellious house. So now when we read that verse, we can look at this and say, oh, okay, maybe it's this blindness thing just about the Jewish nation at that time. Maybe it's just a momentary thing, but it doesn't apply to everybody else. Another scripture that may actually look like it supports that, and I say look like, and I want to underline it and circle it and highlight it, look like, uh, is 2 Corinthians chapter 6, verses 1 to 2. And working together with him, we also urge you not to receive the grace of God in vain. For he says, at the acceptable time, I listened to you. And on the day of salvation, I helped you. Behold, now is the acceptable time. Behold, now is the day of salvation. So when you read that, you say, wow, now is the day of salvation. So are we saying that it was fair for Jesus to shut people out during the day of salvation, to not even give them a chance? Is that what this is implying? Because this text sure sounds like it's saying that. The thing we need to do is we need to understand this was quoted from the Old Testament. And when we look at the Old Testament rendering of this verse, there is a slight difference that makes a profound change in meaning. So let's go to the source, Isaiah chapter 49, verse 8. Thus says the Lord, in a favorable time, I have answered you. In a day of salvation, I have helped you, and I will keep you and give you for a covenant of the people to restore the land, to make them inherit the desolate heritages. And that phrase, the desolate heritages, in the Common English Bible, it says reassign deserted properties. And it's talking about Israel going back to their land, which we have seen happen in our day. So, Isaiah 49.8, the original rendering of this particular, this particular phrase is a day of salvation. And when you say a day of salvation, that implies that there may be more than one. So now what do we do? Yeah, I don't know how we get more <laughs> than one time period of salvation from that. I'm sorry. I see that, that Isaiah prophesied about a day of salvation, meaning there would be a day in the future when salvation would take place. Once Jesus died and was resurrected, 2 Corinthians picks up on that prophecy and says, okay, remember that day of salvation back in Isaiah? Well, now's the time. Now is finally the day of salvation. It's arrived. Okay, and, and that, that, that's a, a good line of reasoning, but there's a much bigger perspective that needs to be looked at. I and, hope so, because now you've got Satan, Jesus, and <laughs> this one that you're going to have to explain. Well, and, and 
the scriptures do the explaining. All we have to do is open up the scriptures and see how they guide us. So we're going to go into these things. We're just opening the chapter here. And basically, here, here's the bottom line, just to, to, to plant the seed. The true followers of Jesus are the first in line for salvation. Then you do have Israel that is, is spoken of. As a matter of fact, in Romans eleven twenty six, even though Israel is out of favor, the Apostle Paul says, and so all of Israel, the nation— the physical nation will be saved implies a different kind of salvation and then we will see a salvation for the world of mankind those who are not believers so salvation is in fact broken up into different periods of time don't take my word for it stay with us and let the scriptures explain it this is thrilling to go through you 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 just you just don't go away this is really awesome stuff so so jonathan let's 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 wrap this up converging on our conversion responsibilities what do we have now jesus is plainly teaching that the gospel will not take hold in everyone even with this message in place the responsibility to preach or to sow seeds is still a clear priority it's very important to remember that the gospel won't take hold everywhere we put it that's a spiritual fact that Jesus himself told us 2,000 years ago. We can't forget that, and we have to put this all in perspective. So now things are getting interesting. The prospect that there's more than one day of salvation provokes a lot of questions. So everyone is not supposed to accept the gospel? What does that say about their eternal destiny? See, now you're getting down to it. The bottom line of any conversation about salvation is eternal destiny. God is love, and Jesus was sent to ransom us from sin. Both of those things being true, how can it be that people can have these truths taken from them by Satan? Or how can someone walk away from the gospel message and still have salvation? We have those two aspects that were brought in earlier, and we really need to unfold them. So what's the purpose of missionary work? What are, what's the churches doing? So some believe that those who have never heard the gospel, gospel, <laughs> gospel, the unevangelized is what that's called. They're lost and they go to hell or in some way eternally separated from God. And this is sometimes called the term restrictivism. And they say that God isn't obligated to provide salvation to anyone because man's sinful. And it's a wonder God chooses to save anybody. The Bible clearly says no one comes through the father except through Jesus. He who does not have the son of God does not have life. Right. But even Jesus didn't convert everybody he met. So if he couldn't do it, how could we? And, and that's the point. So what are we left with? What are we supposed to do with all of these things? Yeah, and on the flip side, some evangelists believe that if someone didn't hear about Jesus but would have accepted the message if they had heard, they will be saved. This is sometimes called inclusivism, and this gives evangelists a big sigh of relief if they miss preaching to someone that there's this kind of loophole that they can they have salvation anyway. But what about how God wants salvation for all in that verse, you know, 2 Peter 3, 9? Yeah, the Lord is not slow about his promise, as some count slowness, but is patient toward you, not wishing for any to perish, but for all to come to repentance. So does this mean that even the unevangelized will be saved? Now, that is sometimes termed universalism. Are we advocating for universalism? No. What we are advocating for is universal opportunity, but not universalism. There's a 
big difference between the two. We're advocating for God's plan to be inclusive in a just way without forgetting the details. And we're going to unfold that as we go here. So go ahead, Jonathan. I'm sorry, Rick. A a lot of Christians believe in hell. So what, what about hell here? All right. So not wishing for any to perish, but for all to come to repentance. That was 2 Peter 3, 9. When God wants all to come to repentance, you better believe that that's not just some pipe dream that he's sitting there, God sitting there on some cloud saying, gee, I wish everybody could be saved. I wonder if there's a way. I mean, this is almighty God we're talking about. If this is what he wants, you know that there's more to it than just this. The hellfire doctrine that some teach is not scripturally authentic. Now, it's traditionally authentic in a lot of ways, but it is not scripturally authentic. And translators have reflected the many question marks surrounding this teaching. Jonathan, let's look at Psalm 917 as an example. In King James, it says, The wicked shall be turned into hell. The Young's literal translation, The wicked do turn back to Sheol. And the New Living translation, The wicked will go down to the grave. Well, we would like to reference our three-part series on hell titled, Is the Hell of Christian Tradition Taught in the Bible? And those are episodes 1021, 1024, and 1027. And just by looking at this one scripture, three different translations take that word hell, they translate it hell or sheol, which is untranslated, or the grave. And there's questions. There's questions about it, and that's why there's this vacillation in something that is supposed to be so important. It doesn't hold up to scriptural, uh, the muster of scriptural reasoning when we really look at it. So God does want salvation for all, as in 2 Peter 3, 9. Now, let's go further. God's love planned for salvation for all. Well, how do we know that? We know that when we go to Hebrews chapter 2, verse 9. But we do see him who was made for a little while lower than the angels, namely Jesus, because of the suffering of death crowned with glory and honor, so that by the grace of God, he, Jesus, might taste death for everyone. Jesus might taste death for everyone. So, Julian, when you were talking about those who, 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 who say, well, you know, if you would have accepted, but you didn't accept, it's still by the name of Jesus. And so when it says Jesus tasted death for everyone, that's a very inclusive statement. Needs a lot more to be built upon it, but it's an inclusive statement for everyone even for those who didn't hear the name of Jesus. Now, what does that mean? Do they go to heaven? Uh, Hang on, we'll get there. But this is something that has to be built. So Again, Rick. What? uh, What what? what about (laughs) hell? Come on, let's keep uh, focusing to make sure we don't miss something here. All right, what about hell? Well, this this doctrine of hell is based on, you know, we, we talked about it being not scripturally authentic. It's also based on a gross misapplication of context. It takes things out of the context in which they were spoken. Jonathan, let's use Matthew 5.29 as an example. In the King James, And if thy right eye offend thee, pluck it out and cast it from thee, for it is profitable for thee that one of thy members should perish, and not that thy whole body should be cast into hell. Okay, it said you'll be cast into hell. The Young's literal translation says, cast into Gehenna. In Gehenna, what's that? What's the difference? And there's an enormous difference. The idea of Gehenna. Gehenna was a uh, Gehenna w- was a garbage dump outside of Jerusalem. It was there for the refuse of the city. They 
would bring sulfur to this valley and they'd keep the fires burning in the, in the valley all the time. It stunk. And the thing is that what would happen is nothing living was ever thrown into Gehenna. The bodies of particularly bad criminals were thrown into Gehenna to be consumed because they weren't buried and that was a disgrace. But there was no torment. There's no torture. There's simply destruction. And you need to understand the context. That's the context. Gehenna to the listener meant complete destruction. That's what it meant. Nothing more than that. You know, this idea of, 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 of torment forever doesn't, have a, doesn't stand a chance in Scripture. And I, folks, I urge you to go to those, those podcasts that Jonathan uh, had referenced earlier because it really does explain this in a, in a much bigger, bigger way. So I want to quote from an article by Jack Zaveda called What is Universalism? Because one of the main arguments for a just but loving God keeping people in hell for eternity is, quote, would it be justice for the wicked to enjoy the same rewards as those who were martyred for Christ? The fact that often there is no justice in this life requires that a just God impose it in the next. Sin is minimalized and trivialized in all universalistic teaching, end quote. All right. First of all, we're not teaching universalism. We're teaching universal opportunity. And stay with us, because justice is not at all minimalized or forgotten or, 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 or looked at through, through a, a skewed viewpoint. No, sin. Sin is not minimalized oh, I'm sorry. I'm or sorry. trivialized. Right. That's what I meant. <laughs> so we need to understand that God's justice prevails and there is actual deep accountability that will, will, will happen, and we're, we're going to unfold that. And just as a note, we are not saying that the justice for the wicked is enjoying the same rewards as those martyred for Christ. Right, right. Two, different, that, two different places. And that's why we're saying that the scriptures talk about salvation in different phases, because there's different pathways depending on who you are and what you're doing in your life. So again, folks, stay with us. This is beginning to unfold at this point. You know, we have to be saved. Saved from what? Well, saved because we are in Adam and we die. We die because of sin. And without Jesus, everybody would live their life, they would die, and that would be the end of their story for all of eternity. That's what this whole thing is about when, when we really analyze it. And again, we're going to build it further. Let's go further. God's justice. We were talking about God's justice and would it be just if? God's justice, think about this, God's justice requires salvation for all. God, now you think, wait, how could that be? It's that way because the scriptures explain it that way. Jonathan, let's go to Romans 5, chapter 5, verse 12, and then verses 18 and 19. Therefore, just as through one man sin entered into the world, and death through sin, and so death spread to all men because all sinned, so then as through one transgression there resulted condemnation to all men, even so through one act of righteousness there resulted justification of life to all men. For as through the one man's disobedience, the many were made sinners, even so through the obedience of the one, the many will be made righteous. Listen to what the verse is saying. Death spread to all men because of one sin. Therefore, justice required through one, one act of righteousness, the justification of life, the opportunity for life goes to all men. That's fair. That's just. 
God's justice requires salvation for all. Rick, once again, <laughs> what about hell? Jonathan, once again, this doctrine interprets picture language as if it were literal. In other words, there are several different ways that it takes a left where it should take a right. And if we would follow scriptural teaching and its context and its symbolism and, and the, the appropriate definition of the words, we'd see things in a much clearer light. Jonathan, let's look at Luke sixteen twenty three as an example of this. In the King James, it says, and, he, and in hell he lifted up his eyes. And in the New American Standard Bible, it says, in Hades he lifted up his eyes. Again, they're not translating the word because there's an issue with the word. If you take one phrase literally in the rich man and Lazarus, all the other statements must be taken literally as well. It can't be done. And that's why we want to be students of Scripture. We want to be students of Scripture because taking things in context, understanding the why of the words, is just as important as understanding the words themselves. We need to place ourselves into a learner's seat and understand that God's plan is massive, and it's just, and it's wise, and it's powerful, and it's loving. So this Luke 16 account is that famous rich man and Lazarus parable and its theme of role reversal. Yes. Episode 881 went into all the details of that passage. It was called, Do the Fires of Hell Come from God? Part 3. Definitely worth listening to, along with the free written companion CQ Rewind show notes on ChristianQuestions.com and the CQ app to see every scripture quoted and much of the commentary. We do that for every episode. So we're looking at God's salvation. Are Christians supposed to convert the world? God's love planned salvation for all. We established that by Scripture. God's justice required salvation for all. We established that with Scripture. Now let's look at God's wisdom. God's wisdom developed a path to give the world salvation for all. Folks, this fits together like an amazing, amazing story that is too good to be true because it is true because it's God's will. Romans 8, 19-21. For the anxious longing of the creation waits eagerly for the revealing of the sons of God. For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it in hope that the creation itself also will be set free from slavery uh, to the corruption into the freedom of the glory of the children of God. So what we have is the scripture is telling us the creation, the world of mankind is subject to futility. Now think about that. Their, their destiny is futile. There's no hope. And they're not, they're not willingly there. They're there because they're in sin. God allowed it. God put that there because of the hope that came through Jesus. So he allows the experience of futility as a learning tool to give them something to be hopeful for because the verse says that the creation will also be set free from its slavery just like the children of God. You, you realize that there's a freedom for all. It's obvious if you read the scriptures. One last point, God's power gives everyone an equal opportunity to be included in salvation for all. Now, how do we know that? Well, that's from 1 Timothy chapter 2, verses 3 to 6. This is good and acceptable in the sight of God our Savior, who desires all men to be saved and come to the knowledge of the truth. For there is one God and one mediator also between God and men, the man, Christ Jesus, who gave himself as a ransom for all, the testimony given at the proper time. And Rick, that word for knowledge, I love this, means 
that it's recognition, it's full discernment of truth, not not just a little. Everyone will have a complete understanding. And, and that brings us back to the parable where the person doesn't understand and it's snatched away. This is the exact opposite. What this is saying is that it is God's will that every man will be saved and come to a knowledge of the truth. Saved, how? By Jesus. Come to a knowledge of full discernment understanding. So you see, there is going to be, because there's understanding, wherever there's understanding, there's also accountability. So we need to under, put this all together and say, hey, there is a plan here, and it is very scriptural. And what sticks out to me is it isn't, you come to the knowledge of the truth, and then you're saved. Right. It's the other way around. You're saved, and then you get this full discernment Jonathan was talking about. So I think the missing piece to this was answered in our two-part series, Did God Make Heaven and Hell, Humanity's Destiny, episode 1174 and 1175. People don't realize that there is a resurrection on earth for the majority of mankind. A heavenly reward is for the very few faithful followers of Jesus during this age of the gospel message going out. And when Jesus said, you know, most won't respond, he was referring to that very special call, these very few, but for the rest of mankind after resurrection, there will be consequences, but there'll also be rehabilitation after their resurrection on earth. And as we get into the next segment, all of that is going to continue and unfold. But what we've done at this point is we put scriptures to every point. We're following the scriptural reasoning and building the reasoning because the scriptures are telling us to. So Jonathan, converging on our conversion responsibilities, what do we have? The New Testament is overflowing with scriptural evidence of salvation for all based on Jesus paying the ransom. While this is a logical and just result of Jesus' sacrifice, it does require us to think outside the box of our typical Christian response to unbelievers. We do have a typical Christian response, and what we're saying is, according to Scripture, we need to rethink these things. So, salvation is broad and deep. It hangs solely upon the fact of Jesus' ransom, and we get to be a part of it. If we don't have to convert everyone now, why do we try, and how do they find their salvation? We preach the gospel because it is the greatest news of all time, and God's call is not limited to any family line or ethnic heritage. We preach not to convert, but to enlighten. Those who hear the message and don't get it, or are simply not interested, are planned for. In God's wise unfolding of salvation, there is an answer. There is a place where everybody fits into the plan of opportunity. But let's say I own a store. I would love to. Um, <laughs> I, sp I spend a ton of money on advertising, but no one buys anything from me. I'll go bankrupt. And collectively, you know, Christians have been advertising to the whole world since the days of Jesus, but you're saying that we aren't expecting anyone to buy what we're selling. So what's the point of preaching if conversion isn't the main goal, or is it that we're just looking for those few footstep followers of Jesus that will make up the bride of Christ? Well, the, the, the purpose is twofold. We are looking for those few footstep followers. We don't know where they're from. I, I, we have no idea. They may be on the other side of the world for all we know. But what we need to do is, is be willing to put ourselves in the position to be the carrier of the gospel. We want to spread the gospel. We want to carry it because it's good news. Just for the sake, if you have something that's great for everybody, don't you want everybody to know about it? Hey, I've got the greatest gift for you ever. 
and it's going to last for eternity. Would you like me to tell you about it? That's kind of what we've got. We need to understand for the sheer joy of sharing good news as well as for looking up for, for others who would follow Christ. It's a twofold thing, and that's what we are commissioned to do. So we, we are supposed to preach, but we do not have the burden of conversion. Exactly. We don't have to feel bad if we don't reach somebody. They're not in a burning hell. They're not lost forever. They have a place too, because God is just and God is loving. And let's prove that. Let's prove that now in this segment. Let's examine the order of salvation. Let's start there. Jonathan, let's go, let's go to 1 Corinthians 15, 20 to 23. But now Christ has been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who are asleep. For since by a man came death, by a man also came the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ all will be made alive, but each in his own order, Christ the first fruits, after that those who are Christ at his coming or presence. So we've got two things here. As in Adam all die, so in Christ will all be made alive. Death in Adam is death forever. Nobody wants death forever. We all want to live. And when we talk about being saved, that's what you're being saved from. You're being saved from eternal extinction. That's why Jesus came, because if we all just lived and died in Adam, that would be the end of everything. But God's justice required a life for a life. So that's the justice part of how this works. And there's an order to it. Everybody doesn't have the exact same treatment to get to their opportunity. Christ, the first fruits, and after that, those who are Christ that is coming. True followers of Jesus are labeled first fruits in several other places in Scripture. James 1, 17 and 18 is an example. The next Scripture we want to look at is a further step in understanding the salvation process for unbelievers. Now, again, listen carefully to how the world is described here. Romans 8, 22 and 23. For we know that the whole creation groans and suffers the pains of childbirth together until now. And not only this, but we also, we ourselves, having the first fruits of the Spirit, even we ourselves groan within ourselves, waiting eagerly for our adoption as sons, the redemption of our body. So it talks about the whole creation, all of mankind, even those who have not heard the gospel, groan and suffer in the pains, and it talks about the pains of childbirth. Something new is coming, some, 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 something brand new, something joyful. That's what this is pointing to, and it's showing that the whole world is suffering in the same pain that we are suffering. So we share it. Now, the reward given to the true church, to those who follow Jesus, is different and in a different order, but it's all life, and that's the key. Childbirth brings life. That's what this verse is focusing us on. So we have this order specified that Christ brings salvation. Then comes the true church. Jesus says, in my Father's house are many mansions. And then you have the rest of the world, the rest of mankind, all of them. How do we know? How do we know that every human being who ever lived has this opportunity? How do we know? Let's look at 1 Timothy 4.10. For it is for this we labor and strive, because we have fixed our hope on the living God, who is the Savior of all men, especially of believers. He's the Savior of all men, especially of believers. Believers especially. Higher reward. We just talked about that with Jesus. Now, how is God everyone's Savior? It's through Jesus. God sent his Son, and that's how the saving happens. We know this through 1 John chapter 2, verses 1 and 2. My little children, I am writing these things to you so that you may not sin. 
And if anyone sins, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. And he himself is the propitiation or satisfaction for our sins, and not for ours only, but also for those of the whole world. So if this scripture is true, and Jesus did satisfy the sins of the whole world, how could billions still burn in hell? It wouldn't make any sense. It would negate the sacrifice of Jesus. Now, when I look at this scripture, clearly here, there's two groups of sinners. There's our sins, our referring to the faithful followers of Jesus, and those of the whole world, meaning the everybody else. So this is starting to make sense. Remember that 2 Corinthians 6, 1-2 text that quoted Isaiah with the a day of salvation that turned into the day of salvation in the Testament? It said, now is the acceptable time. Behold, now is the day of salvation. That's for the followers of Jesus now. So the key to cracking this wide open is that, yes, salvation is only through belief in Jesus Christ, but the time to accept that salvation differs depending on which group you're in. Is that right? It's exactly right. And the point is the qualification of Jesus' name and the qualification of coming to Christ and the qualification of accountability, those are all still in place just at a different time. That's what this really, truly is all about. Okay, so again, this means converting the whole world now isn't our challenge. Our challenge is being faithful to our calling, which includes witnessing, so we can play a significant role in the reconciliation and blessing of the world. That is awesome. It is. It is. It's a tremendous responsibility, and it's a responsibility, though, that we can handle. It's not more than we can handle, and it's a privilege to handle it, and it's a joyful responsibility to say, this is what the gospel, this is why the gospel is good news, because it's so comprehensive. So so let, let's dig a little further. What do we know for sure here, Julie? What's first? Well, we know for sure that all will be raised. We know that unequivocally because Jesus himself tells us that in John 5, 28 and 29. Do not marvel at this, for an hour is coming in which all who are in their tombs will hear his voice and will come forth. Those who did the good deeds to a resurrection of life, those who committed the evil deeds to a resurrection of judgment. Whoa, that's perfect justice. True Christians represent the resurrection of life. Everybody else will be part of the resurrection of judgment. All will be given an opportunity to learn, progress towards righteousness after resurrection, if they are willing. And see, that is why we talk about salvation coming in different, in different waves, if you will, because the scriptures tell us that. This is simple to find if we know where to look in scripture. So we've got this resurrection of life, resurrection of judgment that can lead to life. Judgment is not condemnation. Judgment is a time of trial. So we know that all are raised, some to life because they've already had that time of trial, others to face that time of trial, to be given life as they're faithful through it. So, so Julie, what else do we know to build on that? What else do we know for sure? Well, second, we know that all are going to be held accountable for their deeds. No one is going to get away with anything. There are consequences to what mankind does. And this is really important, folks. This is the big thing that people always say, yeah, but if I don't have to come to Christ now, I can do anything I want. Oh, yeah, really? Really? Listen to this scripture. This is Matthew 16, 27. For the Son of Man is going to come in the glory of his Father with his angels and will then repay every man according to his deeds. It is about accountability and change. 
2 Peter 3, 8 and 9 refers to the day of judgment being a thousand years. That gives humanity plenty of time to learn of God and Jesus and to see others around them being blessed as they learn righteousness. And the whole point is learning righteousness. Remember, we talked about coming to a full disclosure, full knowledge of the truth. How do you come to a full knowledge? You have to learn it. That's what the Day of Judgment is about. There is no shirking of responsibility. There's no lack of accountability. It's all there for every human being. So we know that there will be accountability. What else do we know for sure, Julie? Well, we know that all of this is done to ultimately bless all of humanity. And it's been set up this way from the start. It has. It has been God's plan from the very beginning. God didn't make it up as he went along. God had it in place and then proceeded to create. Because Adam was willing, I'm sorry, because Abraham, let's go to Abraham, because Abraham was willing to offer Isaac to God. Remember that, that, that account back in Genesis. He was given a world-changing promise. Genesis 22, 17 to 18, this promise to him because of his faithfulness. Indeed, I will greatly bless you, and I will greatly multiply your seed as the stars of the heaven and as the sand which is on the seashore. And your seed shall possess the gate of their enemies. In your seed, all the nations of the earth shall be blessed because you have obeyed my voice. A heavenly and earthly salvation. This is the original good news that has been forgotten by mainstream Christianity. Thank God and Jesus for giving all all opportunity to live forever without interfering with individual free will. Remember the Lord's Prayer, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. It's amazing to me that God's plan was revealed in Genesis in place after place after place, but we just don't necessarily see it. Jesus sums it up by, by teaching us that prayer, thy will be done on earth. So we've got this salvation for all promised early on. Now we need to develop that further. So that brings us to our next question, Julie. What else do we know for sure? Well, the fourth thing we know is that those who are faithful to their calling to sacrificially follow Jesus are an integral part of this plan for blessing. All right. They are absolutely necessary, those who are faithful, the called out ones. In my Father's house are many mansions, those, those individuals. They are necessary. And how do we know that they're part of this blessing? Galatians chapter 3, verses 27 to 29, builds on that promise to Abraham. It's talking about that promise, and here's what it says. For all of you were baptized into Christ, have clothed yourself with Christ. And if you belong to Christ, then you are Abraham's descendants, heirs according to the promise. How would you like to be able to help teach and encourage humanity to be worthy of ever everlasting life based on our own life's experience in Christ? What a privilege to bless others. It is. It's an amazing thing. It's an amazing thing. And it says you're part of that promise. So you get to be a part of the salvation for everyone else. So when we look at this whole idea of, of, of converting the world, it, 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 it's a it, very, very different focus right now. So what does our life look like if we aren't tasked with actually converting everyone here and now? All right, let's 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 wrap up with another scripture. We're going to go to First Peter chapter two, verses nine to twelve, and we're going to break it into pieces, and and it's going to show us what our life looks like. First, we are called and chosen to preach the gospel, and that has been a theme from the very first words of this podcast till now. First Peter chapter two. Let's start, Jonathan, with verse nine. 
But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for God's own possession, so that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who has called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. You see how that's written? You're a chosen race. Why? So you can proclaim the excellencies of him who has called you out of darkness into this gospel. That's why we're given this privilege so we can speak it. Next, our life, uh, we're to live a life that reflects the grace that has been given to us as disciples. Our life should reflect God's grace. Verses 10 and 11 of 1 Peter 2. For you once were not a people, but now you are the people of God. You had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Beloved, I urge you as aliens and strangers to abstain from fleshly lusts which wage war against the soul. So you weren't a people of God, now you are. What do you need to do? Abstain from the fleshly desires that play against godliness. Your life is needing to be faithful to the footsteps of Jesus so you can be part of that blessing. This is not easy work, but it is very well worthwhile. Thirdly, we are to be living examples of Jesus. We've been talking about that. So that those who know of us will be able to give God glory in their future resurrected experience. Now, you know, it's great when people give God glory now, but what about things that they remember from this life and they carry next uh, to their resurrected life? Let's go to 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 12. Keep your behavior excellent among the Gentiles, so that in the thing in which they slander you as evildoers, they may, because of your good deeds, as they observe them, glorify God in the day of visitation. So you see that those who are not converted to Christ now have the opportunity to glorify God later because you gave them hope. Think about the beauty of that opportunity. Jonathan, let's wrap this up. Converging on our conversion responsibilities, what do we have? Our responsibility as Christians is to preach. Conversion is left in the hands of God. Our responsibility as Christians is to be an example of Jesus to those around us. What people do with that example is beyond us. Our responsibility as a Christian is to be transformed by God's Spirit and do His will. How are we doing? (laughs) That's the question. How are we doing when it comes to all of these things? Folks, listen, we have to realize this is good news. This is really good news, and this is Good news that in most cases is not preached. It's not understood. But the scriptures we've spent this hour talking about, the scriptures teaching us how this good news unfolds and dovetails together and gives us a plan of salvation for all mankind. We don't have to worry about converting them now, but we do need to be responsible to preach the gospel and grow in grace and grow in Christ and become Christ-like so that we can help in the future and give those because of jesus ransom an opportunity to live forever on earth thy kingdom come thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven that's what this is about think about it folks listen we really do want to hear from you give us your feedback or send us your questions on this episode or other episodes at christianquestions.com also a big part of spreading the word about our podcast is subscribing to christian questions in your favorite podcast channel such as Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Podbean, iHeartRadio, Google Podcasts, wherever you get your podcast, please rate us and review us. We greatly appreciate it. Next week, coming up next week, how can I effectively reach out and connect with others? How do you do that? 
We'll talk to you next week.